Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, uh, September the 20th, 2023. Um, a little more than a year ago, actually, just a little under a year ago, I had a woman called Laura Kaplan on the show. Uh, she contributed to a book called The Story of Jane, the, uh, the Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service. And Jane was uh, appropriately legendary, I thought, quite a remarkable woman. And the book is about, in part, uh, her involvement with this movement. It came out originally uh, in June 1997, The Story of Jane, and then it got re-released, and that's why she was on the show, um, in uh, 2022, last October. Uh, it's a factual book. It's a narrative about how she founded and ran uh, a legendary Chicago reproductive rights organization. Uh, that's the nonfiction. And today we're talking about a fictional version of this by my guest, Garrett, Kerry Meyer. Uh, she's a very successful novelist. Many of you be familiar with her book, uh, Paris, The Paris Bookseller, which was a New York Times bestselling book. Uh, and now she has uh, a fictional recreation of, uh, of uh, the very subject that I talked to Laura Kaplan about. And she's joining us from her home just outside Boston. Congratulations, Laura, on the book. Uh, it's always interesting to have fiction following nonfiction. Uh, why did you decide to do this book? In some ways, for me at least, it's slightly out of keeping with your previous work. You know, it is a departure in a lot of ways. So there's sort of two parts of the question. So the first part is um, I found out about the Jane Collective um, from an NPR news story back way back in uh, 2018. I was driving to meet a friend for a movie, listening to NPR, and they did one of these terrific you know, narrative news stories that they do about the women of the Jane Collective. And this is the first time I had heard about them. And, you know, as they talked about all the things that the Jane Collective did, they started as a referral service in Chicago, referring women to safe providers for of abortions in the late 60s, and eventually took over the whole operation to provide the abortions themselves. And these were lay practitioners, regular women, just like me, I thought to myself, who were providing this service in Chicago. And, you know, I'm listening to this news piece going, really? They, they did? <laughs> they did that too? And I just, by the time I stopped the car, I was just completely uh, riveted by this story. And of course, I'm a writer. So of course, I fire up Amazon to see if anyone else has written a novel about them. And to the best of my like searching at that point, they had not. I did, of course, see Laura Kaplan's nonfiction book, um, about Jane. And of course I ordered that <laughs> um, and I read it. Um, and that began a lot of reading um, about Jane and preparing to hopefully someday at that point, uh, write about the Jane Collective. Um, it is a departure from my, per my first three historical novels in some really important ways. My first three historical novels were about real life women. They were about Kathleen Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's younger sister, Grace Kelly, 
and Sylvia Beach. Sylvia Beach was the star of the Paris bookseller that you mentioned. She opened the original Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris in the 20s. Yeah, now, that's the Paris bookseller. And then the other one is the, the Kennedy debutante. Yes, the Kennedy debutante. And the book in between those was about Grace Kelly. It was um, called The Girl in White Gloves. There it is. Beautiful. Yeah. All of those have such beautiful covers. Um, and so, but with this novel, with All You Have to Do is Call, and with the women of the Jane Collective, I did not want to write about the real life women for many different reasons. But um, part of which was, like the the characters, um, the three point of view characters who became my main characters in this book, Veronica, Patty, and Margaret, they kind of made themselves known to me as characters almost as soon as I started thinking about this as a novel. And they were entirely fictional women. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have an entirely fictional cast of characters in this novel was because I did actually want my characters to be older than the most of the real life women of Jane. I mean, the real life women of Jane, the earliest members were college students and, and also and just out of college. So these were remarkably young women doing this work. Um, and for, for narrative reasons, I wanted my characters to be a little bit older. I wanted um, to, at least two of my main characters to have children themselves. Veronica, when the book opens, Veronica is uh, my character who's one, one of the founders of my, my fictional version of Jane. Um, she is, has already a seven-year-old daughter when the book opens and she is pregnant with another child. Um, so that would have been tough to do with characters who were um, in college. <laughs> so I hope that answers your question. So in, a, in an odd way, Carrie, I don't tend to, for the most part on this show, do, uh, do interviews with, um, with novelists, but I'm particularly intrigued when literature or nonfiction and fiction kind of merge. Would it be an exaggeration to say that for you to, 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 to get to the core truth, in your view at least, or the, comple the complex truth, the meaning of what happened with the Jane Collective in, in the late 60s and early 70s, is you had to do literature? You know, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, I mean, certainly Laura Kaplan did a terrific job with her nonfiction account. There's another terrific nonfiction account of Jane called, it's actually sort of a fiction nonfiction hybrid called Hello, This is Jane by Judith Arcana, who is another um, member of the, the service. Um, and so there's, there's, you know, there's lots of points of entry into material like this. Um, but something that I say in my at the end of my author's note that I that I, I stand by um, is this idea that you know as as Laura says in her title the legendary um, service of Jane they really are kind of a legendary uh, group of women I compare them to the Knights of the Round Table who you know. Um, we've told stories about the Knights of the Round Table over and over and over again. And I, I, I think that the women of Jane are deserving of similar treatment. You know, I think there's lots of ways in which to tell this story and that we need to tell this story. Um, I, you know, there, there are other points of entry. You know, I, I told um, a, a provider story. The, 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 most of my characters are on the provider side of the um, this, this, the service, as they called it internally, um, the Jane service. But there's, 
potentially some stories and novels to be written from the other side, um, from the women who are going to the service. Um, there's just so many important stories that need to be told about reproductive justice. So this was a service, as you say, you tell it from the, um, the provider side, from about a real life, uh, a real life um, fact, an event, the Jane Collective, between 1969 and 1973. Not everyone, um, uh, Kerry, will be familiar with the background to the Jane Collective. Tell us a little bit about why it came into being. What was happening in the late 60s in the United States and in Chicago in particular? Well, you know, this was like an amazing moment for um, protest of, of a variety of kinds. You know, you have Vietnam War protests, you know, you still have civil rights protests going on all over the country. Um, and the women's movement really of the, that we think of from the early seventies really grew out of those late sixties movements. And in fact, um, you know, I read a number of accounts of the feminist movement of this time. And one of the things that was talked about repeatedly is that the women's consciousness raising groups, um, which were, you know, coffee clutches of women talking about their experience of being a woman in the world um, and, and in more and less formal uh, scenarios. Um, but they, they talked about how they would try to go to meetings of SNCC and other civil rights groups, and they would be basically talked over by the men in the groups. And so they saw a need for a, a woman's movement to, to bring forward the cause of women in, um, in uh, society. And, you know, this culminates in some ways in uh, the founding of NOW in 1966, uh, the National Organization for Women, which was founded by Betty Friedan and Polly Murray. Um, you know, I, I went and read, this is a fascinating document to read now, the 1966 mission statement of NOW, which cites a number of statistics, um, one of which is that women in 1966 made 60% of what men did for the same work. Um, and now we're at 82%. So progress, but still a long way to go. Um, in 1970, there was the famous March on what Women's March on Washington. It was a strike for equality, and you get all kinds of fantastic signs that you know that if you look up, if you Google um, images for the from this march, you know don't don't iron while the strike is hot. It's one of my favorites. Um, uh, so there's a lot of optimism in this moment um, for women uh, and hope that things will change. Um, you know, in the in the people's marriages, in um, at the local level, but also at the national level, because we have on the um, on the um, law the the on offer in Congress and in the Senate the Comprehensive Child Care Development Act, which would have offered universal child care and preschool. Um, which would have changed the lives of single women and working families uh, forever. It passed the House and the Senate and was vetoed by Richard Nixon in 1971. And so 
the, and we also have the uh, Equal Rights Amendment, which was drafted in 1923, but came up for ratification in the early 70s and also passed the House and the Senate, went to the states for ratification. There was a lot of excitement around uh, ratifying that amendment, which would have provided equal rights to people of all genders. But for it, that there's a novel unto itself in that, um, but mm. unfortunately did not get ratified in time to become an amendment. And it, there's there's a movement afoot to resurrect it, which I really hope happens. Maybe that'll be the subject of your next novel. Um, <laughs> we also have, uh, if not the seeds of the culture wars, because they probably went back further, but certainly the um, certainly. Uh, echoes of, of, of much of the debate today. You had, you, you mentioned, we, we did a show on Pauli Murray a few years ago uh, and Betty Friedan's uh, foundation of now in what, 1966. But you also had the rise of a, a, a reaction to that, Phyllis Shafley um, yes. and hostility to the ERA. What do you make of that? Was that a genuine conversation or do you see dark forces behind the reaction to uh, to Friedan and, and her work? You know, uh, I'll be honest, like I, I that that movement was not the focus of my research. I, I know some things about it. I think Phyllis Shafley is herself a fascinating figure. She was played in a movie by Kate Blanchett recently, I believe. Um, and, you know, Kate is one of our, our great actresses. Um, you know, I, uh, it's, it's so complicated and I don't want to boil it down to any one or two things. I, I think one of the things that really emerged in my research, because it was, I was really focused on abortion and reproductive justice and the history of that in this country was to notice how differently the women of Jane and even nationally talked about abortion in the late 60s and early 70s to the way we talk about it now. So I was born in 1975, okay? So these women that I'm writing about were like my mother's age, my the age of my college professors and you know, so I I had some experience with the way they spoke about these things. But really I was raised in what we might call the and I don't know if people are going to be able to see me, but I'm putting quotation rabbit marks around around this term pro-life. You know, I was I was raised in the pro-life era, okay? And they that you know, group of conservative thinkers um really took over the language and the way we talk about abortion and reproductive uh, rights. In the 1960s and early 70s, it was a conversation about women's uh, li liberation, women's lib, feminism, bodily autonomy, and human rights, women's rights. And it became a conversation about um, whether or not you were pro-choice or pro-life, this kind of false binary. And I think one of the things that really gives me hope is that um, in the last five-ish years, but especially in the last year since Dobbs, there's been a concerted effort among, um, you know, pro-reproductive justice um, activists to take the language back. <laughs> and we're not, we're not going back to an antiquated 1970s language, right? Like that would not be the right thing to do. We're, we're you know, feminism and the, the language of reproductive um, healthcare is, is much more inclusive and very different than it was 50 years ago, appropriately. Um, but there is, I mean, even just 
no longer calling the, the former pro-life movement pro-life, but calling it anti-abortion or anti-choice. Um, I think those are important um, changes that the movement is making now to kind of reclaim the language around it. We are talking with Kerry uh, Mayer, who is the author of a brand new novel. It's out this week. All you have to do is call um, a fictional recreation of the Jane uh, Collective. Um, we're going to take a short break now. Uh, and uh, after the break, I want to talk more with Kerry about where we were back then with abortion and today and the challenges and opportunities of writing a novel about a subject she obviously feels so strongly about. So don't go away, anyone. I just want to remind everyone that we are sponsored by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. I'm going to run a short ad for them, and then we'll be back in two seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Laura, uh, not Laura, Kerry Mayer, the author of All You Have to Do is called a brand new novel about uh, the Jane Collective of the late 60s, early 70s in Chicago. Uh, Kerry, we, we talked a little bit about uh, the politics of the late 60s, early 70s. What about abortion itself? Where were we back then legally? What could and couldn't you do? Well, you know, it's a lot like where we are now, which is that it was essentially up to the states. Um, and but no, it and <laughs> there were in many states there were these uh, therapeutic abortion laws on the books, which made abortion technically legal in certain cases. Um, so you have a situation in which women who who their own life and health might be threatened by carrying a child to term, having to go before hospital boards, which were largely comprised of men, although it didn't seem to matter very much, um, having to ask for this, for this uh, procedure and justify needing this procedure, which, as you can imagine, did not really go very well. Um, you know, the, the nonfiction accounts of, of Jane, like Laura's book, are full of, of, you know, just horrifying anecdotes about, you know, women having to go before these boards um, and, and, and being denied the health care that they needed to stay healthy and safe, which, which really made, you know, Jane very, very necessary. And, you know, something we haven't mentioned yet is that Jane, uh, the lay practitioners of Jane had an incredibly low incidence of complications. They learned how to give this, uh, this procedure very safely in a very straightforward manner. Um, they always provided antibiotics to, to stave off infection. And by some, they could not, because what they were doing was illegal, they could not keep the kinds of records that would enable us to give us great numbers now. But the estimates are that they, they, they either referred or provided 10 to 11,000 abortions in Chicago in these years. It's really remarkable. That's an astonishing number. It's a, it's 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 amazing in one city, right? 
Um, and you know, I think so. So I it, it, this isn't also an instructive piece of his, this history. So you have the states. States are able to make their own laws. So some states have these therapeutic abortion laws, um, and then. In, in 1970, kind of famously, New York state becomes the first a state to legalize abortion in the way, way we think of it today, right? Where you don't have to justify it. You can ask your doctor for the procedure and get the procedure um, without a hassle. And Jane actually, want, because New York wasn't that far from Chicago, the women of Jane um, actually wondered whether or not they should become a referral service again. Um, you know, or a bus service, you know, it, really the resonance with today is astonishing, right? You know, we have, because now we have providers trying to figure out how to get women from states where it's illegal to states where it is legal. Um, and, and we have the states trying to clamp down on that. It's really, it's, it's, it's a mess out there now. Um, and in some ways it was less messy in the seventies. Um, but, uh, but there was, you know, there was an overall social movement toward making abortion legal. Um, it was it was in the polls. It was widely favored. And obviously, the Supreme Court made the decision. It just wasn't as controversial as it is now. Yeah, I'm uh, rereading Rick Perlstein's trilogy of books on Nixon and Reagan in that period. And so many of the issues are almost identical today. It's astonishing. And obviously, abortion is one of the central ones or the debate about abortion. As a novelist, I, we talked about this, Kerry, at the beginning. I mean, your your, your other three uh, novels that you talk about, the Kennedy uh, debutant, uh, the, uh, the Girl in White Gloves, um, and the Paris Bookseller are all, I don't know whether you would want to call them romantic literature, but certainly not didactic in any way was is this book all you have to do is call would it be an insult if if i said uh it was didactic did you want it or do you want it to be didactic is no, I, there a lesson there it's not an insult at all but i'm not sure i would use that word it's it's certainly an issue novel um you know and I would say my first two novels, Kennedy Debutante and Girl in White Gloves, um, were not issue novels per se, but but uh, the Paris bookseller is, it, well, I'm not sure we would call it an issue novel, but it absolutely is about censorship and fighting against right. yes. Sylvia Beach, in addition to running the world's most famous bookstore, also stepped up and published James Joyce's Ulysses after it had been banned in a big court trial in New York in 1921. And, and uh, oddly enough, um, as that book was coming to press, we were there nationwide, there was this spate of, um, you know, censorship happening in schools and public libraries all over the country. You know, the mouse was um, um, uh, pulled in Tennessee. Um, and that was just like an avalanche of, of, of other um, censorship examples in the news. So, um, you know, I think I, I, I think maybe I've changed lanes a little bit from, from the Kennedy debutante, but I've, I've sort of changed slowly. 
<laughs> and all of these books, I think what all of these books have in common and is one of my central themes as a writer, and I don't really see myself ever getting too far away from this, is that it's about women helping other women. It is about, they are about women coming into their own and finding their voices and finding their independence against the odds, against certain historical circumstances. That was one of your women friends. <laughs> it was actually a, a reminder to get my daughter some, somewhere, <laughs> but I've already rearranged that. I apologize for the the uh, alarm. No, I'm teasing you. Um, so leaving aside the, the, the didactic or the potentially didactic quality of the novel, were you also tempted to do something, if not science fictional, something where there was a little bit of, of time traveling? Or, or do you think a, a straight historical novel is pretty much in its own way, given our preoccupation with abortion in 2023, uh, that that's implicit in the work? You know, that is such a fascinating question because I'm actually toying with the idea of time travel, not for my next novel, which I'm, I've started working on, but for a future novel. So time travel is on my mind, although it did not even occur to me in the writing of this book. I think it's important to remind readers that Although this book is coming out into this particular climate in 2023, that was not the climate I started it in. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, the temptation that you're sensing maybe you're, or that you're um, wondering about to write speculative fiction or time travel fiction um, just wasn't wouldn't have even occurred to me back in 2020 when I started writing this book or, or in 2018 when I got the idea for the book and the characters said, hello, I want to be, you know, I want to audition for the role of Veronica, please. Um, so it's just, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, but I think it, it's, it's partly a, just a, an accident of when this book is coming out, that it feels almost speculative. It, it feels like, um, a time travel novel. Um, but that wasn't the world that it, it began in. The world caught up with your book. There's a tradition, of course, of social realism, particularly the one that came out of the Russian Revolution or even in the 19th century. Are there novelists uh, or forms of social realism, social realist literature, books or, or writers that you modeled this on, that you aspired to become? Gosh, that is such a big question. I mean... I you know, of course, when you think of social realism, I think we all think of Charles Dickens, even though he's not at all contemporary. You know, he sort of, I think, was the the great grandfather of social realist fiction. Um, and I have a real love hate relationship with Dickens. <laughs> um, I've read, I've I was assigned great expectations like at least three times in high school and college. So I've read it many times. You know, Bleak House. Um, I, I've read Bleak House and and the other more usual suspects. Um, um, you know, Oliver Twist and uh, Tale of Two Cities. Um, so I think th those kinds of books, you know, classics are always, I like to say wallpaper in my mind as I'm, as I'm writing my own books, you know, they're all, it's part of my DNA. I can't really, I can't separate myself from it. Um, you know, one of the books that I, I, I did, I might call it a, men a contemporary novel that was almost like a mentor text to this to this novel was Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty, mm. which is you know it's 
it's absolutely a commercial, massive commercial success. Um, it goes down easy. Um, it's a it's a great novel, but it is about domestic violence. I mean, it is an issue novel. <laughs> um, it, as much as it is a, a tapestry of female friendship and um, uh, and a moment in our our history, but it's also it's about it's about what happens um, when we let um, secrets and, um, violence go unreported. Kerry, so uh, uh, um, again, you don't need me to tell you this. Uh, abortion is obviously an enormously divisive issue, uh, probably the most divisive issue in America today. Could you imagine people who you don't agree with reading this book and actually coming out of it and scratching their head and thinking, well, Maybe I need to rethink my own position. Uh, and also, perhaps people in your camp who might come out and think, maybe it's not quite as simple as I first thought. That is, a, both of those scenarios are, I think, my, would be my best case scenario. <laughs> um, I absolutely hope that people on both sides of this issue can read the book and see themselves something of themselves in this um, and, and come away with the idea that the issue is more complicated than maybe they first realized. Um, it was certainly, I mean, I have been pro-choice pro and, um, you know, in favor of reproductive rights for my entire adult life, but I absolutely learned some things in the research of this novel that I hope to, to convey in the novel that I hope readers will be able to walk away with a different way of looking at it. Um, you know, I also hope, I think this is important to say, you know, because this is a provider novel, I really hope that today's providers feel seen by this book. Um, we haven't talked about this because it's not obvious, but I was writing the early drafts of this book during in the like depths of the pandemic where we were seeing um, doctors and nurses and other care providers on the front lines risking their own, you know, lives and, um, you know, situations to provide care. And that is exactly what the women of Jane also did. They put their their own selves and their lines and their livelihoods on the line to provide care to the women who needed it in Chicago at this moment of history. Um, and even though obviously the pandemic was an illness and you know abortion is a different thing, that call to service was something that I really mm. admired in people during the pandemic and wanted to bring to these characters because I do think that they there's a through line there. Kind of civic duty. Uh, finally, Kerry, given how divisive this is, you know, there are many people in America who are also talking about being in the middle of reestablishing conversation of people understanding the point of view of, other, of the other side. We've done shows on Braver Angels and many other groups like that. Is there a way... And I'm not going to talk about splitting the baby here because that would be rather crude. But um, <laughs> is there a way that we can get beyond this or is this just going to be an issue that keeps on dividing America, upsetting everyone and, and creating le one kind of legal precedence and political precedence after another? Um, gosh, I hope not. Um, but 
I think it is important to note that the polls show that your average American voter overwhelmingly supports abortion rights. Um, it is a small number of politicians who are in in the seats in the seats of power who are making this uh, um, such a divisive issue. It I'm not it it's it's a delicate issue and it's but it's being made into a divisive issue by a, a minority of Americans. Um, so I you know that I think that's important to say. Um, and I do you know there's a character one of the point of view characters in this novel, Patty, is the one who traverses, I think, the greatest um, uh, divide in her own life and mind about this. And it's because it hits home for her in a very specific way. And I do think reading, you know, there's studies that show that reading increases our empathy. It helps us think about the world in different ways. If, if some reader can be in Patty's shoes and experience Patty's story as their own, I do hope that maybe they can um, come out uh, the other side of the, the novel and realize this is something I say in my author's note. There is no them here. It's all us. It's all us here.